Nightmarica is an independently produced podcast. If you like what we are doing, please consider supporting patreon.com forward slash Aaron Sagers. Welcome to Nightmarica, a podcast that takes you on a tour of the abnormal, paranormal, weirdly true, and truly weird in every corner across this nation. Because whether it's ghosts, aliens, monsters, or monstrous humans, there's something strange in your neighborhood. Episode 46, Ape Canyon with Eric Altman. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Ahoy, hoy, Nightmaricans! Aaron Sagers here, your host, and I am happy to have you back for another episode of Nightmarica, of strangeness, and I'm excited for my guest co-hosts for this episode. This is a buddy that I've known for a long time. I, I say that periodically. Actually, I kind of say that a lot on this podcast because really, what's the what's the fun of having a podcast if you can't just basically bring in all of your friends and the people you've known for a long time to tell you a story? And in this case, I just happen to know a lot of really cool people and have a lot of friends that have interesting expertise so with that said this gentleman i've known for a long time he is a a, an expert i would say i would say expert in the field of cryptozoology and exploring the unexplained creatures that are out there he is a cryptozoologist he specializes in the research of bigfoot slash sasquatch with a combined 39 years of the study and research of the phenomena. He's very well respected. He is a field researcher, a contributing author, and director of the Pennsylvania Cryptozoology Society. Eric Altman was also the host and co-founder of Beyond the Edge Radio, a live weekly radio program covering a wide variety of paranormal and fringe topic, and that aired from 1997 to 2019 he's been actively investigating cases and citing claims going back to 97 he has investigated and or assisted check this out in more than 250 cases of bigfoot sightings encounters and claims in pennsylvania alone he's the director of the pennsylvania bigfoot society he has served as an organizer of the east coast bigfoot conference from 2000 to 2011 he, beginning in 2016, he organized and hosted the Pennsylvania Bigfoot Camping Adventure, which was an annual charity fundraising event that has successfully concluded its third year in 2019. I'm sure it would have gone in 2020 as well, but of course, 2020 being as crazy as it is, we have to postpone it a little bit. Eric is a much sought after public speaker on Bigfoot. He has lectured all over the country going back to 2000, and he's been featured in multiple documentaries, television programs on Destination America, Travel Channel, Destination Plus, and films about Bigfoot. Uh, I've, I've worked with him on shows. He has written and contributed to multiple books and articles on the subject, and also 
been interviewed on countless radio and internet podcast interviews and has appeared in newspaper articles and other forms of print media. And I am happy to have him here with all of those credentials. He is bringing a lot of expertise to Nightmerica. So, Eric Altman, welcome to Nightmerica. Thanks for joining us, my, my friend. It's good to see you, Aaron. And man, I should get that guy on my podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. As I said, the, the joy of doing these interviews and whatnot is just bringing along your friends and talking with them. And it's great in the paranormal field, right? Because uh, no disrespect to anyone who works an honest job. I respect that. But it is pretty great about the paranormal field in particular that the friends you can call upon to talk to you have such a wide array of expertise, such as talking about cryptozoology. It's, it's a little bit more exciting than accounting, I think. Yeah, much more so. Numbers, <laughs> numbers are boring. <laughs> well, you know, we first met, I think it was at, was it at Phenomenology many, many years ago, which is a paranormal event that at the time was running in Gettysburg. But is that when we first met? Yeah, I believe so. It was a phenomenology, like the second one, I think it was. Yeah, it's a long time. I think I still have one of those great Pennsylvania Bigfoot Society t-shirts that you guys used to sell. That's still in my collection of, of paranormal tees. But, well, let's let's dive right in, and let me ask you some questions. I mean, first off, how does one become a cryptozoologist. I mean, I, I mean, and I, this is, this is a softball question. Obviously I know a lot of folks out there. I've known you for a long time, but for anyone that doesn't know, how does one become cryptozoologist? Well, a cryptozoologist isn't really a doctorate or a PhD or anything like that. It's a name that's given to people that study creatures that haven't been identified or recognized by science, unknown creatures or creatures that are thought to be extinct. So there really is no profession of a cryptozoology. It's a, it's a title that's given to guys like me, Lauren Coleman, that study right. the phenomenon. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with zoologists. They actually go to school for zoology, you know, and learn and learn about animals and stuff like that. Cryptozoology itself is not uh, an academic. Um, that's the word I'm looking for. Uh, field of study, at least not yeah, yet. It's, it's not a degree that you can necessarily right. go attain. It's more something that you gain through expertise and through research? Yeah, we, we study the, the phenomenon uh, of different animals, and we learn about them, we research them, and over time, you become more and more familiar with the topic, and uh, it's in, in ins and outs and, and different functions, different behaviors, different um, degrees of each species that you're studying. So in a sense, you do become kind of an expert the longer you do it and the more you do it. But there really are no true experts when it comes to these creatures until they're um, scientifically recognized and proven as a legitimate species. So cryptozoology, is, it, it's just a title, in my opinion. And um, there's a lot of people who call themselves cryptozoologists. Um, I'm, I'm just an average guy who gets out there and looks for Bigfoot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, speaking of Bigfoot, well, first off, this is the controversial question. There has been a bit of a debate in recent years about whether or not we should continue calling this creature Bigfoot versus Sasquatch. And in fact, some people, I've spoken to some some mediums, some psychics that are saying he doesn't even like being called Bigfoot, or he, she doesn't like being called 
Bigfoot that instead prefers Sasquatch and we should retire the B word. What do you what do you think? Do you do you think we need to retire Bigfoot? Well, that's that's a hard question to answer because the term Bigfoot's been around since 1958. So that's what everybody's pretty much familiar with when it comes to this creature. Um, the term Sasquatch is only one of several hundred Native American names given to the creature by the Chehalis Indians out of British Columbia. And a matter of fact, we'll be talking about Eight Canyon 1924. That's where the term Sasquatch uh, was coined in 1924 by J.W. Burns, who was uh, visiting with the Chehalis Indians. And they talked about a, a, a giant fellow tribesmen of the forest, a wild man of the forest, if you will. And they called it Sescahavis. And uh, J.W. Burns actually um, anglicized that word into Sasquatch, which we're familiar today. But the term Sasquatch is only one of many, many names Bigfoot's given by a variety of different Native American tribes across the country. Right. I mean, you automatically know what you're getting when you say Bigfoot. We automatically conjure an idea. So it is a bit of a shorthand. I guess I guess Sasquatch as well these days. But aside from Bigfoot, what are some of your I mean, I'm I'm a skunk ape guy, love skunk ape, uh, you know, growing up in Florida. But what's your Momo, Woodbooger? What's what's your favorite name for Sasquatch? Um, I like the grass man, to be honest with you, mm -hmm. out of Ohio. Um, it just has a, a 1970s feel for it, kind of a Cheech and Chong type of thing. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's just one of the many names, the localized names that uh, people around the country give their creature. You mentioned Momo from um, Missouri. Missouri. Yeah. yeah. And uh, the skunk ape from Florida, obviously. The woolly booger from Texas and Oklahoma. I mean, there's so many different names that localized areas have for this creature it's kind of like the native american names um people know them by different contexts wild man um the the muddy creek monster from out in illinois southern illinois so there's a variety of different names that that fit the creature based on localization yeah yeah and across the globe as well not mm -hmm. just north america but so for you personally what what got you into sasquatch what got you into bigfoot i mean everybody has their entrance into the paranormal for one reason or the other. How did Bigfoot hook you? Well, um, as a kid, um, nine or 10 years old, I was a big fan of those really bad B horror movies. You know, um, the day the earth stood still or attack of the giant spider people from Mars, you know, those kind of really cr crappy B movies. Crappy, but watched. great. They, yeah, they love them. Yeah, they were. And that one particular movie you can see over my, I think it's my right, my right shoulder over here. Um, on the back wall, that movie poster, Legend of Boggy Creek, was a film produced by Charles Pierce. Yeah, right, that one right there. <laughs> I'll get it. But uh, that was produced by Charles Pierce back in uh, 1970, 71, and then released as a film in 1972. And it's a docudrama about a little town called Falk, Arkansas, where the people of Falk were having these ongoing encounters and sightings of this wild hairy hominid running through the swamps and bottoms, the bottomlands. And I saw that when I was probably about 10 years old in 1980. It, uh, it was on public TV by then. It was it made its round through the drive-in theaters and, and made it to TV. And I saw it. And I was always interested in, in like I said, the sci-fi movies, the horror movies and stuff like that. So here's a movie that's possibly has some truth to it because right in the disclaimer, the very opening shot of the film, it says based on a true story. And that really fascinated me as a kid. Think, okay, well, maybe monsters are real. 
So I started looking into the, the phenomenon itself, going to the public library and reading books. And I was amazed, just literally stunned to find out there were dozens upon dozens of books on the subject. There were hundreds of newspaper articles. And what really blew me away was there were sightings of Bigfoot um, in my home state, in my hometown, back in the early 1970s, 73 and 74. So from that point forward, I was hooked. I had to learn as much as I could, um, study as many newspaper articles as I could. Heck, there was an even, and you've probably heard of the gentleman, Stan Gordon um, mm -hmm. from Pennsylvania. He was living in my hometown. So right there, I had a Bigfoot researcher living in my hometown. I, I was absolutely hooked and had to learn everything I possibly could. And that began my first 20 plus years of educating myself researching the materials, studying books, watching films and documentaries, just engulfing all of it to, to understand the phenomenon. And finally, in 1997, I decided, well, I've learned as much as I possibly can. Let's get out there now and put some of this book knowledge to, to use and see if there's anything really to the phenomenon. So I began actively looking into cases, and uh, that's been going on now maybe, what, 20, 23 years, 24 years now that yeah. I've been looking into cases. So... Yeah, it's been a it's been a long road, that's for sure. Do you? I I, I want to know a little bit about where. What's the state of the field right now? Where do you think people are? Because I think overall, there's within the umbrella term of the paranormal, and and maybe you don't want to put Bigfoot in the paranormal, but so far we haven't. Uh, well okay this is this is perhaps dicey territory like would you put bigfoot under the umbrella of paranormal let me let me ask that question i kind of would because we it's an ongoing mystery and it's something that we don't fully understand quite yet we don't have a live or dead specimen science hasn't acknowledged this animal exists and there are a lot of folks who have kind of leaned over towards bigfoot possibly having attributes that we don't quite understand yet therefore he kind of does fit into the paranormal realm in a way. Well, there there's certainly some people that have theories that I, maybe Bigfoot's a ghost. Maybe Bigfoot mm -hmm. is an interdimensional being, you know, and, and then that's also we're referring to one Bigfoot, one Sasquatch, as opposed to multiple or an entire species of them and running around out there somehow. But the... So where is the... What's the state of the field right now? Because you do definitely see more talk about aliens aliens and extraterrestrial life and it's gaining some sort of mainstream acceptance maybe not acceptance it's it's close to acceptance but where is the the what's the state of bigfoot do you think we're coming to a point where people are coming around to belief in sasquatch i think it's more widely accepted than it was 20 30 years ago and, and i blame that a lot on pop culture television programs, um, the media. I mean, obviously the subject's been around for a long, long time, but it seems to come in waves where the media will give it a lot of press and a lot of uh, publicity, getting the word out there, especially if there's a flap of sightings that occur. And back in the, the 50s, 60s, and 70s, as we progressed, it was thought more that Bigfoot was a flesh-and-blood animal, maybe a, an offshoot from a relative of us, the missing link. Uh, possibly an undiscovered primate. So the the thinking back in those those what three decades ago, moving forward, has really changed. Um, it went from that flesh and blood mentality to now there are people that are 
basically, like you said, calling it an interdimensional being, an alien, a ghost. There's so many different theories. And I think that stems from a lot of people not feeling they can comfortably solve this mystery. So they're kind of, well, if it can't be solved, let's put it in this. It's trying to put a square in a round hole, a square pig in a round hole, so to speak. It's trying to fit it into what they believe it could be. We don't necessarily know that it is a paranormal being. It still might be and it still very well could be a, a flesh and blood animal, but a lot of people are leaning that way or bending towards it being a, um, a paranormal being or uh, interdimensional being. And as we're learning more about the world around us and dimensions around us, we've just found out there's multiple dimensions that we coexist with. People are more open to that possibility that Bigfoot may be interdimensional. Mm-hmm. Um, the field is a mess right now, to be honest with you. There's no not one set way of thinking and because of that, a lot of people argue and debate and uh, throw out these theories that really don't have a lot of relevancy to them. In other words, they're throwing anything at the wall and hopes, hoping it sticks. And uh, it's a lot. Of, it's really brought on a lot of consternation in the field. So, yeah. The, yeah, the field is a mess, unfortunately. And until we can finally get an answer as to what Bigfoot is, I see us going forward to, like a snowball, continuing to roll downhill and gather more and more and bigger and bigger until it finally hits that wall. And one day, you know, what happens then. So my fear when people ask me about, about Bigfoot, I, I'm afraid of the evidence because of the proof, because I feel like the proof is going to come in the form of a dead Bigfoot. And, and that, that makes me sad because I would rather have something alive out there that I may not totally understand as opposed to here is a dead specimen. Am I, am I kind of wrong in thinking that? Is that just like a cynical way of, of thinking about that's going to be the evidence that, that would open, make this 100% accepted? No, I think you're on the, you're spot on with that. Um, Unfortunately, that's, I think the only way we're going to be able to solve this mystery is with a dead specimen because, um, History shows that these creatures have been around for hundreds, if not thousands of years, and we have sightings with them and very brief encounters with them, but we've not been able to capture or to study a live specimen in their own habitat. And people have tried. They've, they've come up with all kinds of different ways of means of trying to either study or capture, and they've just been unsuccessful. So I, I think you're right spot on with saying that the only way we're going to prove it is a dead specimen. And I hate to to say that but that's unfortunate that's what science wants they want a body and that's the only way it's going to be accepted now there are people out in the field that have accepted it and they know bigfoot's real to them it doesn't matter if we have a body or not it's 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 a real it does exist but for science and mainstream um the mainstream public the only way they're going to accept it is a specimen put in front of them yeah well, we will get into your story, and it's definitely a a big story, pun, I guess, intended, in a moment. But first, so I do a little thing about news, where you get to choose your news. So I want to throw a couple headlines at you, and then you get to choose it. But first, we're going to hear from one of our sponsors. Support for Nightmerica is brought to you by Manscaped, which is the best in men's below-the-waist grooming for more than 2 million men and counting. The best way to get started is with the Manscaped Perfect Package 3.0, and this is full of the best products to keep you looking, smelling, and feeling nice. 
The Perfect Package 3.0 is led by the revolutionary third-generation lawnmower 3.0 trimmer. That has advanced skin-safe technology and features a cutting-edge ceramic blade to reduce grooming accidents. And we talk about a lot of weird stuff on this show, but we do not support bloodletting. So avoid that altogether with the Manscaped Lawnmower 3.0. It's also waterproof, and that prevents a mess on the bathroom floor and in the sink. So let's be real. Unless you're a ghost, you are going to smell sometimes. I mean, demons, goblins, Sasquatch, and humans, they all stink. So do you, guys. But with the Crop Preserver and Crop Reviver Ball Deodorant and Ball Toner, you can smell good. And the manly scent is attractive. It's going to help set the mood. And I personally enjoy the new Refined Cologne. That's a signature scent by Manscaped, and it is a perfect complement to the entire collection. It completes your grooming game. The Perfect Package 3.0 also comes with a pair of Manscaped boxers. Toss those ratty, overused undies. Get Just get them out of there. And trade up with these high-performance anti-chafing boxers. They are easily the comfiest boxers I have ever had. And if that is not enough for you, you should check out the Shears 2.0. Now, what are those? This is a luxury four-piece nail kit that features tempered stainless steel tools within a compact case made of premium leather and there's a magnetic closure it's actually really nicely designed you got these these tweezers these round point scissors fingernail clippers a nail file it it's, all comes together really nicely I, i'm really digging it okay so how do you get the perfect package and the shears well you're going to head to manscaped.com and you are going to enter the code nightmerica20 and that gets you 20% off, plus free shipping. Again, manscaped.com, enter the code NIGHTMERICA20 for 20% off, plus free shipping. Manscaped, the right tools for the job. And we're back, and it's ready for Eric Altman to choose your news. <laughs> Two headlines. Okay, the first headline. CCTV footage shows creepy moment triplets start talking with invisible figure. That's headline one. Or headline two, could NASA start seeking out alien civilizations by hunting for air pollution? Which headline do you want to hear about? I'm going to have to go with number one. The triplets talking to whatever they're talking to. (laughs) That sounds pretty interesting. This comes from... Australia, and it's a website called KidSpot, so it's a parenting-focused website. And this is a visual medium, or an audio medium, however, this is referring to video. But creepy CCTV footage has captured what appears to be triplets talking and squealing with an unseen figure in their bedroom. In the footage, the three two-year-olds can be seen running around their room before all joining each other 
next to a wall pointing to something in front of them. Their mom, Caitlin Nicholas, recalls overhearing the toddlers, Presley, Millie, and Hayes, arguing with each other. Oh, and this happens in the homes and in, in the U.S. state of Georgia. And she says, Caitlin says, the unsettling encounter has only happened once, but it's not the first paranormal experience to occur in their home. Caitlin first thought to check the baby monitor when this happened after hearing squealing from her triplets bedroom and saw them arguing with the wall. And in the footage, you can see one of the toddlers can be seen giggling and pointing to the wall and then looking back at their siblings as if to beckon them over. And then that's when they all walk to the wall before the first toddler runs away. And then it's a five minute video and you can really see all of these kids looking in the same direction, beginning the conversation with this, you know, maybe something's there, maybe not. And then there even appears to be this little game that they play. And then at another moment, it looks as if the girls are hiding in fear. It's, it's a lot. It's, I mean, it's a significant uh, length of a video. I mean, you know, five minutes of, of weird footage is quite a bit of time. So, what do you think about that? Do you think he chose chose correctly? Is that a good story for you? That's an interesting story. It makes you wonder what they were communicating with or looking at. That's that's kind of creepy. I mean, then again, it's you know kids in the middle yeah, of the well. night. Who knows what game they're playing? And and plus, like, no offense to any twins or triplets out there, <laughs> but they're inherently a little bit weird because of how connected they are. True. So who knows? True. Maybe they could. Maybe we we're looking at that, thinking, "Oh, it might be a ghost," but instead, it's their telepathic abilities <laughs> being shown <laughs> off, or or something. But uh, yeah. So all right. Well, let's dive into the story now. This is the story of Ape Canyon. This is a a big story in Bigfoot lore. And I'm going to let you launch into it. I'm going to just interrupt you on occasion with some questions. So, uh, Eric, uh, set set the scene for me. All right. So this uh, this is one of, like you said, the classics in Bigfoot lore, and uh, one that I became familiar with when I first started researching this. This takes place in um, Southern Washington State in July of 1924. Uh, probably, I think it was the 13th or 12th of July. 24 when this whole incident took place but let me go back about six years because these gentlemen they were prospectors miners in the uh the southern slope of mount saint helens were up there looking for gold and they had come across a pretty good vein of gold and they set up a claim and they were spending six years prior to this event up there in that mountain looking for gold and, and going up every couple weeks and staying in a cabin they had built and they had built this cabin out of pine logs, very sturdy, no windows. Um, and they, it was a, a very small cabin, just enough for, for the six prospectors. And uh, they wanted to stay there as long as they could and collect as much gold as they could. So they, they spent a lot of time up there. And during that first six years, they were going up to this canyon. And prior to this, it was not called Ape Canyon. Just so we'll keep that in the back of our minds for now. <laughs> they went up to this canyon. And it's about eight miles um, from a little community called Spirit Lake. And uh, they would go up there and they'd do their, their prospecting, looking for this, this uh, gold. And every so often they would hear strange whistling or high-pitched howls 
that would seem to emanate off of the ridge lines around this canyon. And it would echo through the canyon and they'd hear the whistling and they'd stop and look at each other like, what is that? That's, we never heard that before. And they could never figure out where it was coming from. And from time to time during that six year period, they would also find very large human looking footprints. And of course they had heard rumors and stories about Native Americans still being in the area. And they just figured it was another tribe that was still pretty wild and, and out there in the forest, sharing the forest in, the, in that canyon area with them. But they never saw anything and they never really had anything to, to worry about. They, they felt comfortable up there. They were never threatened other than hearing these weird sounds and these seeing these strange footprints. Well, and, but these at this point, there were there was local lore about something out there, correct, from the yes. native people, from the Native Americans. Yeah, it was basically the talk of this kind of wild um, Native American tribe of, of Indians that lived in the wild and kind of survived off the wild. They didn't have necessarily um, like a uh, village or anything like that that they lived in. They just kind of moved throughout the, the forests and the mountains and stuff like that. And they were supposedly very wild and kind of aggressive form of, of Native American Indian. That's what the lore basically told them. So they really didn't have any fear of it. They just assumed they were just sharing the woods with another tribe and they okay. didn't think much of it. Um, that leads up to the week of uh, July 13th, 20, 1924. Um, it happened where um, Fred Beck, who wrote a book about this a little bit later on, but he and one of the, uh, the miners, I believe his name was Roy Smith, they were walking back to the cabin from the mine and um, as they were walking back through the forest on a trail, they saw a very large hair-covered creature that was standing near a tree. They didn't know what it was. They'd never seen anything like it before. So Roy immediately grabbed a rifle and took three shots at it. And the creature very quickly ducked behind a tree so it wouldn't be hit and kept poking its head out. And they continued to shoot at it, which eventually drove the creature off of the, the, the tree and the hillside it was on up a ridge line and it disappeared from sight and it moved very, very quickly. Well, the two guys were kind of shaken up by what they had seen and they went back to the cabin and they told their other counterparts, the other miners, they said, hey, we ran into something out there that we've never seen before. It was definitely not a bear. It was upright walking like a person and it was covered in, in head, head to toe from hair. We've, we've never seen anything like it before. We don't know what it is. So they came to the agreement that they were going to spend the night and because it was too dark for them to really try to travel down the mountain back to the, where they parked their vehicles, which was a good several mile walk. They figured, well, we'll get out here first thing in the morning. We'll, we'll go back to town and you know we'll just get away from this place because it may not be safe. There was immediate immediate acceptance from the other guys back at the cabin. Yeah, because they'd all seen the footprints. They had all heard the screams and whistles in, in the past. So they knew there was something up there. They just never really put much credence until Fred and Roy had their sighting of this thing and took shots at it. So they were a little unnerved. They, they, Fred and, and Roy really never did anything to come across as hoaxers or jokers. Or, they were pretty credible and sincere and honest with the other, um, the other miners. So they kind of said, yeah, we, we understand what you saw, you know, we didn't see it, but yeah, you obviously saw something because you're pretty shaken up by it. And they were. they were. They were pretty hyped up when they got back to the cabin. So at that point, they agreed, first light in the morning, we're going to pack our stuff. We're going to head down the mountain and get out of here because it may not be safe. So they uh, finished discussing it, decided to have a, qu a quick, very quick dinner. 
and call it an evening. So they did. They had a very quick dinner and just went to bed. Now, as I mentioned earlier, this cabin was not a very big cabin. It was small. And the bunks were lined up where they could sleep. Um, two people, foot to foot. In other words, the feet going this direction, the feet coming this direction. And, they, and the other rest of the uh, miners would sleep on the floor in either um, sacks or bags or, or blankets that they had brought with them. This was and, just for shelter and gold. Like they were there to do business, strike it rich. Yep. And this was just uh, to keep them out of the elements in the meanwhile. Exactly. And it was a very sturdy cabin. It had been there for, for a number of years. So they, they just relied on it basically for a, a temporary shelter while they were there doing their prospecting. They would go home, uh, live their normal lives, do their dorm, normal work and all that, and then come back up on the weekends or weeks at a time to do the prospecting. So that evening, they decided to hunker down and call it a night, get up first, light of dawn, and make their way down the mountain. So about midnight, um, that's when all the excitement and activity started. There was a huge thud on the side of the cabin, and part of the chinking between the logs came loose. And it was a big, big part of chinking. It came out between the logs and landed on the chest of one of the miners who was laying on the floor. And it was so loud and so aggressive, like a huge thud, like something had run into the side of the cabin, that the miner who had the chinking fall on his chest jumped up with his rifle in hand and just started looking around like, oh, my gosh, what's going on? Now, keep in mind, this cabin didn't have any windows, so there was basically only only light they would have is what would come through the chinking and if they turned on any um, candles or um, lanterns or anything like that. So they're, they're all kind of staggering around. One, one guy has his gun, and they see the light coming through the chinking. He, they see he has a gun in his hand, so they get nervous. They get up and start looking around. And as they're looking around and talking to each other, like, did you hear that? What was that? there's another loud thud on the side of the cabin. And they're like looking at each other like, what the heck is that? Is it a bear trying to hit the side of the cabin? They just couldn't make any sense of it. And this continued again, another loud thud on the side of the cabin. And pretty soon they hear banging on the sides of the wall and banging on the front door. And they're thinking, oh, what's going on here? So one of the guys looks out through the chinking that had been knocked loose. And in the moonlight, he sees four very large, as he called them, ape-like creatures standing in the clearing around the cabin. And they're running at the cabin, they're charging at the cabin, hitting the walls, pounding on the walls, pounding on the doors, beating on the doors as hard as they could to get in. And at that point, they didn't really have a lock on the door. They had a post inside where they they budged up against the door, they right. forced against the door to keep the door from coming open. And these supposed four ape-like creatures just continued to pound on the the cabin um they were beating on the door they were up they climbed up on the roof of the cabin they were jumping up and down trying to get in to these guys in the cabin now fear set in obviously um confusion panic and fear set in so the guys began shooting through the walls of the either through the chinking that fell out or through the ceiling just trying to get these whatever they were outside to stop and the attack would go on for 15, 20 minutes at a time. Then they would back away and stop. And the guys would stop firing once the aggression stopped towards them. And this went on all night. Um, it would get real active again. They would run into the side walls of the cabin. They'd pound on the cabin door. They'd pound on the, the roof. They'd jump up on the roof. And there was points where um, Fred Beck in his book that he wrote later 
talks about hearing rocks being thrown down from the ledge above the cabin down onto the roof of the cabin. So the, the miners in the cabin felt they were under siege by these ape men, if you will. They didn't know what they were at the time. They were just looking at the chinking and seeing the missing chinking and seeing these humanoid hair covered creatures running around the clearing and attacking the cab and trying to get in to do whatever to the, the guys in the cab, whether it be harming them or just trying to get in. They didn't know. So the siege lasted all night. There was gunfire. They would shoot um, outside, um, just randomly shooting to try to scare them off. And it, the activity would die down for 10 or 15 minutes. It would get quiet. They wouldn't hear anything. And they'd be like, okay, maybe they went away. And then all of a sudden it would start up again, beating on the walls, beating on the front door, running full force into the side of the wall, trying to knock this cabin over. They said at one point, according to Fred's book, that it almost felt like they were trying to push the cabin over from its side. There were several of the creatures working together to try to lift the cabin up and flip it over, if you will. And, the siege lasted all night, and eventually, in the morning come daybreak, the siege ended. It just abruptly ended, and it got quiet. So the gentleman stayed inside the, you know, the cabin for a while and listened and looked at the missing chinking of the, the logs, didn't see anything, didn't hear anything. So finally, they decided to go outside and investigate. And when they went outside to investigate, that's when they found very large human-like footprints all around the cabin. They found very large rocks all around the cabin, strewn like they were either thrown at the cabin or they found rocks up on the roof. So there was obviously sign that these creatures were there and they tried to make a, an aggressive entrance into the cabin. So as they're outside looking around, they, they came to an agreement. I think we need to go. We need to go now. And just before... <laughs> I mean, that's a pretty reasonable response. Of, sure. Like, let's let's yeah. uh, scoot out of here. <laughs> yeah. And as, as they were leaving, they um, Fred, Fred Beck claims that he saw one of these creatures about 80 yards away from the cabin hiding behind a tree. And he claims he shot at it three times, hitting the creature and causing it to fall 400 feet into a ravine below. And at that point, they were they had enough. They said, let's go. They left over $250 worth of prospecting tools and equipment. And as you know, back in 1924, that's pretty valuable equipment to leave up there. And they left it. And they went down the mountain as quickly as they could. And um, this is where the story becomes kind of controversial because we have this classic story. They go down the hill. The first place they come to is a ranger station. And Fred Beck and Roy Smith and Roy's son went into the ranger station and told two of the rangers who were working there what they had experienced. And uh, the rangers thought, well, maybe it was a bear. Maybe it was, you know, something. Maybe it was a Native American up there. Or, you know, they angered a tribe or something. But they did agree to go back to the cabin, which they did. And um, they looked around the cabin, and they saw the lar very large human-like footprints. They saw the very large boulders that were strewn around the cabin. And um, the rangers came to the conclusion that, the, the miners, the prospectors faked this. They said that they used the, the palms of their hands and the knuckles of their, their hands to make the human looking footprints in the ground. They weren't impressed by the, the boulders that were laying up against the cabin or some of the small rocks that were on the roof of the cabin. They felt that the miners could have done that themselves, but the story got out. Um, and what's kind of funny is that the, uh, the group agreed not to talk about it after the Rangers came up and debunked the claim. And they said, well, we're just going to not talk about it. We're going to leave it quiet. Well, Roy Smith went to 
um, another friend told his friend what happened. And as you know, word got out. And um, there was probably at that time, maybe 10 to 15 newspaper articles that came out, putting out the story to everybody and discussing it. And most of them, as you have, I sent you copies of them, you can see that most of them pretty much ruled it as a hoax. Yeah. That there was nothing to it. Um, interestingly enough, from that point forward, Fred Beck had not talked about the encounter. He would not talk about it to anybody for another 43 years until 1967, January of 1967, as a matter of fact, when he released a, uh, a pamphlet book um, recounting his experience of battling, as he called them, the mountain devils. And uh, he's in very explicit detail. He described what they went through and all the experiences they had, including shooting a creature prior to the attack on the cabin and shooting a creature after the attack on the cabin and everything that went on that night while they were, they were inside the cabin. Uh, a very harrowing story, regardless if it's true or not. If, if he didn't make it up, it, it's really, it really keeps you on the edge of your seat thinking if you were in a dark cabin with five other guys and guns and you have these unknown animals attacking, trying to break in, it's a pretty harrowing situation. The the things that I find fascinating about this story, so it, it, and it did. It made the newspapers around pretty pretty quickly, and these headlines. I mean, look, it's it was also during a time where sensation was sensationalism was definitely great for newspapers, and maybe we never left that time, but. The one of the things that I found interesting is one of the deputy game wardens, uh, Justin Mark, I think, said that he had never heard of these mountain devils and that the lore was just all bunk of mm-hmm. of these creatures out there. Have you is that is that accurate or have was there documented reports or at least legends or lore had other people backed up saying like yeah i heard about it i never believed in it but yeah i heard there was stuff up in those mountains or there were these this lost tribe of native americans did other people back that up or was justin warden uh, correct in saying look not enough people know about that that lore so i think these guys are making it up well there was lore around at that time um, but it was thought they were just a lost tribe of Native Americans, a very wild and savage tribe that lived in the forest. There really wasn't thought of, of apes or gorillas or mountain devils, if you will, that lived up there. Although some of the Native Americans did talk to them about some of the, the creatures that lived up in that area, possibly being a Sasquatch. They were familiar with that being seen up in there. But there was some. It just wasn't brought to the attention of the, the wardens. And... My thinking is, even if it was brought to the attention of the wardens, they probably poo-pooed it, you know, saying, oh, it's just, it's an urban legend, it's a story, and that's all it is. They, they probably never saw any proof of these animals or had any um, legitimate documented stories that they could find evidence for or talk to eyewitnesses for. So they probably thought it nothing more than a legend and left it at that. What I also is, I, what I also kind of find interesting, so the... The book or the pamphlet that Fred Beck released, you said it was, uh, what was it, 1960, 1970? 1967. 67. So, but prior to that, so the group did release a statement in July 1924 saying, quote, we expected that people would disbelieve us, but we ran into the beast, whatever it was, four times and finally packed up and left a perfectly good mind to get away from it. And now I, there's something about that that I think is interesting. 
you don't just walk away. As you mentioned, you you have two hundred plus dollars of mining equipment, but also the land. I mean, they when you're yeah. there to work and you've invested so much of your own money into it, it doesn't strike me that you're just going to walk away on a flight of fancy or too much whiskey from the night before. That that is literally walking away from your potential future. Exactly. Yeah. They they gave up a lot to walk away from it cold without ever going back other than to take the, the rangers up there to, to show them the, the cabin in the area. They it didn't go back to the area. They, they, after that uh, occurrence, like I said, Fred Beck didn't talk about it for almost, what was it? 43 years. And uh, he, he didn't release the pamphlet until 1967. I think at that point he was at the age where it, it didn't matter to him anymore. I mean, he was getting up there in years and he, he wanted to get the story out there with the help of his son. And they released that pamphlet, you know, him fighting the, the, um, the apes of ape Canyon is, is now called the battle with the apes. So yeah, it, it really boggles the mind. Why? I mean, and they knew people wouldn't believe them, but why would you leave all that prospecting equipment up there? Um, why would you leave a, vein, a possible vein of gold and just walk away cold from it? That just doesn't make sense. Okay. Well, what if, and and what if at that point they had spent enough time, six years, something like that, going up there, didn't really get enough to pay off. Was this part of just like a scheme to say like, OK, maybe we can walk out of this and then either sell the land or or try to get out from underneath it? Was was there any thought that this the, those hills were dry? So crazy as it is maybe this is a good way scheme to get out of out of uh this property well if you think about it and this is just me putting my my logical sense into it if you wanted to sell the property and have someone pay decent money for it you wanted to make money off of your investment why would you come up with such a crazy story that there's huge mountain devils or ape-like creatures running around up there that may chase people off and have less possibility of an investment buyer to buy that property I think if you wanted to walk away from it, you would want to show, hey, this is what we've got out of the area so far, and sure. it does have potential. So you you want a buyer to come in and buy it, obviously. You don't want to put out a crazy story and have everybody think you're nuts and then run a risk of not being able to sell it. Did this? Did they hear sounds emanating from these creatures roaming around the cabin? You said earlier in the day, or that in the past they would hear the whistling sound. What kind of noises were these these mountain devils making as they were running around and throwing rocks and trying to push the cabin over? Well, it doesn't in, in his pamphlet it doesn't really talk much about the details of what they were making. I mean, I believe he mentions that they were making some audible sounds, grunts, growls, that type of thing. Um, and I don't recall. It's been a while since I've actually read the the pamphlet myself, but I don't recall him saying that. Um, he heard any kind of language or uh, high-pitched whistling or communications that he mentioned in the past. Um, so I, I honestly don't recall them him specifically saying a certain type of sound other than maybe some grunts or growls. Did he, did Beck, when he wrote the pamphlet in 67, how did things change for him? I mean, was this a, did, did he suddenly find himself to be a wealthy man doing talk show circuits? Well, I mean, 67, <laughs> no. but like what, what happened after this pamphlet? 
Uh, he did sign an affidavit. Uh, he talked to a couple of uh, prominent Bigfoot researchers at the time, and he got a little bit of publicity. The book didn't make much money. The little pamphlet didn't sell. But um, his story got out there, and I think that's what his intention was, is just to get the story out there to kind of settle the settle the score, so to speak, or, or to settle the dust on it once and for all, to say, here, this is what really happened. This is my side of things. Believe it or not, read the book if you want to or not. Because as far as I know, he wasn't really looking for publicity other than with the help of his son. He was at the age of, like I said, he didn't care anymore. He just wanted to get the story out. And give me perspective here. I know uh, if if I'm my memory serves, the Patterson-Gimlin footage was also shot in 67, the famous, you know, uh, the, the, the famous Bluff Creek footage that we all associate with Bigfoot. Was that before or after... Beck's pamphlet was published. Um, Beck's pamphlet, I believe, came out in January of 1967. And the Patterson-Gimlin film was released October 20th, 1967. Interesting. So, yeah, almost 10 months. So what's your take on this story? What, what do you think? Um, well, there's there was some other strange things that have happened up in that area afterwards. So it leads kind of suspicion to possibly there have been, and there have been reported sightings, obviously, in the last 20, 30 years around Ape Canyon, you know, that's how it has its name now. But um, yeah, I think that they really did truly encounter something. They went to the Rangers and tried to explain what they, they encountered. The Rangers just blew them off. They, you know, they, they said, well, we don't buy it. We don't believe it. This could be easily faked. You're not showing us evidence that can't be done by humans. So therefore it's not tangible enough to us for us to say that, yes, they were, mountain devils or apes or whatever you want to call them i have a follow-up question but you know what let's actually take another word from a sponsor nightmerica is brought to you by the smell of fear candle co i love the way a candle can change the entire vibe and character of a room and smell of fear brings a lot of literary and film characters to a room these scents are inspired by characters and settings from stories and history for example there is the Telltale Heart Candle from the Essence of Poe collection, and that smells like the infamous oak floorboards with just a hint of tobacco that I imagine the crazed narrator of that story was frantically smoking. I also dig the Gonna Need a Bigger Boat Candle from the Cinematic Sense collection. Jaws is one of my favorite movies, and this candle, it puts me right in the action. It smells like salty sea air with the wood of an old fishing boat and just a hint of whiskey that Quint was most certainly knocking back. In fact, I was just burning the gonna need a bigger boat candle last night as I was reading a book and it really just set the scene for me. Okay, I'm a paranormal a researcher and journalist and I have to I have to say that I love the Sasquatch candle obviously from the Cryptid collection. And no it it does not smell like that stinky beast we all love, but instead it is inspired by the heavily forested areas in the northwest that Bigfoot is said to roam with hints of redwoods, cedar, pine, and earth. Other collections include the literary redolence or televised temptations there is also the whiff of king think of stephen king so with more than 80 candles and counting smell of fear candle co has you covered and they have new candles released monthly for instance there is the beware the crimson peak that is a 
new scent that smells like earthy red clay. And I love the TV show What We Do in the Shadows. And that theme song, You're Dead, it gets stuck in my brain all the time. So there is the You're Dead candle, which is an homage to What We Do in the Shadows. And it smells like red currant. And there is also the Spellman candle from inspired by The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. And that has a classic dragon's blood scent. So these candles are a coconut soy blend with no paraffin, so they are eco-friendly. They're organic, renewable, sustainable, minimal environmental impact. They're also clean burning, and there is almost zero soot in comparison to other types of wax candles. I also like the fact that they are slow burning, and they have this fantastic scent throw. It fills an entire room, and it's nice that they're not made with nasty chemicals. So these candles are available in several shapes and sizes, as well as in different wax melts. Plus, Smell of Fear Candle Co. donates a portion of profit to various nonprofit organizations monthly. Past donations have gone to COVID relief funds and pet rescue organizations. And that's, that's just really nice. I like supporting a company that supports others. Finally, with the code NIGHTMERICA, you can get 15% off your order at thesmelloffear.com. Again, code NIGHTMERICA for 15% off. So check them out, Smell of Fear Candle Co. They make good sense. And we're back. And in the scheme of things, we hear about different personalities and traits of potential Sasquatch sightings. What made this different for you? Like in the in the entire spectrum of Bigfoot sightings attacking people this aggressively is pretty notable or is it? I mean, how does, how does this, how is this different look wise, sound wise, behavior wise compared to what you've studied and what is generally talked about in the field? Well, that's, that's a great question. And what I've learned from my studies is, interactions with these these creatures the people that claim to have interactions or sightings is usually fleeting and they're very docile interactions in other words if a creature sighted by a person the creature tends to run off in one direction while the eyewitness runs off in the opposite direction there's no aggressive behavior displayed there's no um throwing rocks beating someone up i mean that does happen occasionally where there's rocks thrown but there's nothing usually nothing aggressive when there's a bigfoot encounter but here we have multiple creatures trying to destroy a log cabin trying to physically get in this cabin to do god knows what to these individuals inside the cabin and my take on it is the reason for this attack was because roy smith uh, prior to the attack saw one of these creatures and instead of it being a fleeting encounter where the creature runs off and he runs off, he shot at the creature several times. And he was showing aggression towards this creature, and that creature obviously fled. But then later that night, that creature returned to the cabin along with several either family members or parts of its tribe to defend itself, if you will, or to possibly get some vengeance for being shot at. That's the way I see it. 
Yeah, and and one wonders how things would have gone differently if he had not shot at it. And certainly, and I'm not a primatologist. I would have opened with that if I had been a primatologist. I'd put that on all my business cards. But I'm not a primatologist. But the primate behavior, there is, there are acts of aggression and retaliation and group behavior working together. I I I believe. Correct yes. me if I'm wrong. Yeah. You're right. So does this kind of, do you think that this makes sense? This behavior kind of makes sense if this was a Sasquatch too. I mean, I guess you just kind of said it, but this would, this was pissed them off enough to, and they had to defend their turf. Yeah, that's what exactly I think happened is, is they were shot at and they felt aggression towards them. So therefore they retaliated and they wanted to get those people off of their turf, their their area. And the only way they knew how to do that is to physically intimidate them or harm, harm them for shooting at one of their own and drive them out of that area. And I think that's what their intention was, was to harm those individuals in the cabin. They were just unsuccessful in getting into the cabin. I don't know. We didn't talk about this before we started recording, but have you read the Max Brooks book, Devolution? I have not yet. I've heard it's, it's uh, very interesting, but I have not yet. I do find it interesting. I feel like uh, Max Brooks, I've, I've interviewed him multiple, multiple times. The man does his research. He's not actively saying that these things exist or not. But if it were to exist, this is how it would behave. But you also, I think when you read the book, you will see that there's a lot of, he knows Ape Canyon. You know, mm-hmm. I'm not saying there, there's definitely some some shared inspiration there with the with the ape canyon story so today if i were go to go to uh ape canyon to it's it's what like 45 miles outside of uh kelso washington is that correct yeah Yeah, yeah what would i find today well it's basically just a, a clearing an open clearing um meadow with some pine trees surrounding it it's really nothing i mean there's some trail markers that have arrows pointing to ape canyon and interestingly enough the the remnants of the cabin wasn't discovered until 2013 a gentleman by the name of mark marcel had done a lot of research on the canyon and on the incident and trying to locate the remnants of the cabin the cabin stood intact for many many years after the encounter but for some reason it burned down and no one knows how or why it burned down, but it burnt down. So there was nothing left after that fire. And um, no one knew the exact location of the cabin until Mark started doing research. He finally found some um, some of the prospectors' tools that were left there. And they were un- un- under dirt and buried in the ground and stuff like that over time, obviously. And um, he found part of a foundation, what he believed was the actual cabin. So in 2013, he released... Uh, a pamphlet of his own talking about a canyon and talking about his discovery of the, uh, the remnants of the cabin. So it, it was there. Um, but today people go up there all the time. They hike, they camp up there and it's just a, a big meadow with some pine trees around it. Nothing too exciting to it. Yeah. And, and back, I believe it was back to describe these as seven to eight feet tall, 400 pounds, flat nosed face surrounded by an encircling halo of black hair, mixed with white with ears that were huge cupped and pointed how does that fit within accounts eyewitness accounts of sasquatch 
uh, that pretty much matches with a lot of what people say. Um, a couple of different things is the hair, the the hair around the face, the white. That's yeah. not uh, not a common trait, but that doesn't mean it doesn't happen. The cupped ears. Usually, people when they talk about seeing a bigfoot, they don't describe ears because they don't see them. More likely, they're hair covered. So. Yeah, his description pretty much fits what people describe, you know, the seven to eight feet tall, massive shoulders, covered in hair, four or five hundred pounds. Yeah, that, that pretty much fits into what people describe. And if you really think about it, in 1924, there wasn't a lot of communication going on around the country, let alone that area about Bigfoot, unless you were familiar with some of the, the lore that was spread by either the Native Americans or passed through miners or prospectors or outdoorsmen, you know, mountain men, if you will. So there wasn't, it wasn't publicly known about these creatures. So his only knowledge about it was the, the stories that, like we talked about, the Lord that was passed around about this supposed tribe, this wild savage tribe that ran around up there. Yeah, that's, that's something I, I really love about these old clippings when you dig into the archives of, you know, now we just automatically say Sasquatch or Bigfoot or maybe something a little bit more regional, but Bigfoot is generic term. But hairy bodies like bears is one headline. Tribe of, quote, ape Indians or the devils or ape men or gorilla or, you know, it's so even within the headlines, uh, there's disagree. Well, not there's there's not a consensus about what to call them. It was so early in this in the reporting of this phenomena that we hadn't settled on the on the name yet. And right. and I, I think that's really cool. Well, all right. So this is a big one in the in the Sasquatch reporting. And anything else that that is worth putting out there about Ape Canyon in this story? And, and I appreciate you sharing. This is great. Like, it's so fascinating. I've heard the story before. But you definitely kind of give us a nice timeline and line everything out, very uh, very detailed oriented. So I appreciate that. But anything else about Ape Canyon and the Mountain Devils? Well, there's a really interesting story I can share with you real quick um, that, that took place in the Ape Canyon area that was brought a lot of speculation that one of the uh, investigators thought possibly the Mountain Devils or the Ape Men got this guy, and that happened in May of 1950. There was a, a very well-versed outdoorsman and expert skier named Jim Carter who disappeared from the Ape Canyon area without a trace. And uh, he was up there with a, a group of other individuals. They were doing some mountain climbing and planning on skiing. And he decided to leave the group and ski down the mountain so far to come around a bend. And he would photograph these guys as they were coming down the hill. And he went down the hill around the bend, and that's the last they ever saw him. And the guys came down the hill skiing after him and, and following down his ski his trail from the skis, but there was no Jim Carter. And they followed his ski his uh, trail from the skis, his tracks for several, several miles, and they went over very wide crevices. They were erratic through the snow, almost as if he was being chased by something. And he was scared and terrified. And he eventually they saw the the skis go off of a, a ravine way down into a gully and disappeared. And they thought for sure they'd find his body down there, but they never did. And they had over 75 people looking for this guy back in 1950. They never found a trace of him. They, he just disappeared from up in Ape Canyon. And one of the rescuers speculated maybe the apes of Ape Canyon got him. Not exactly. Yeah, it, it's not a guy that was a rookie skier. Not, guy that's not at used all. To the, yeah, 
but that kind of thing it, it just it fascinates me so much and yeah the uh, i mean i'm i'm sorry it happened but i love that kind of like uh, ancillary story connected to to that that's yeah that's a crazy one well before i let you go i mean i have to we you already mentioned a little bit of the paranormal pop culture associated with bigfoot but what are your favorite sasquatch related movies that are out there oh, there's there's quite a number of good ones obviously legend of boggy creek remains one of my all-time favorites um creature from black lake another film that was filmed around cattle lake texas about a uh, creature haunting a small town in, in texas um, there's been so many over the years that they're sasquatch the legend of bigfoot the, the classic bigfoot film from the 1970s so many good films out there. And there's even good ones coming out today that are out there. Big Legend, if you haven't seen it, um, it's on Amazon Prime. is definitely worth the watch. Yeah. There's also, um, I like Willow uh, Willow Creek, right? The, yeah, that's a good one, too. Yeah, with, but directed by Bobcat Goldthwait, who yes. is a big Bigfoot fan. It's mm-hmm. like there are a lot of, I love the celebrities that are huge Bigfoot uh, supporters and researchers. And then uh, finally, what are you, what's what are your other favorite cryptids? Because then I'm going to have to have you come back and, and tell some stories about those. Well, my my other favorite cryptid is the Mothman of Point Pleasant, West Virginia. Same. That's, that's probably if I had to put it up against Bigfoot, that would come become a very close second because there's so much legend and lore and the paranormal wrapped into that one. Um, it, it's, it's so multi-layered that I, I couldn't even begin to, with the minutes we have left to, to discuss it, but that's one of my, my favorite stories too. Yeah, same. We, I did do an episode on Point Pleasant a while back and had to keep it very top level to fit in an hour, top level to talk about, um, the Mothman, but yes, I, I do think a Mothman is having his moment, I, or its <laughs> moment. I think it's like becoming a new rock star of the paranormal. Everybody's talking about Mothman right now, so you know, maybe uh, I don't know. And it was just recently, like the twentieth anniversary of the uh, Mothman Prophecies movie with Richard yeah. Gears. So, yep. so maybe he's about he's he's due. He's due for another one. <laughs> uh, well, Eric, uh, before, where where can people find you? Support your work and give you a shout out well i'm on social media obviously um eric howard altman is my facebook name if you or eric h altman if you look me up you can find me there EricAltman.net. um i'm on the web i have a website there and uh, pabigfoot.com for the pennsylvania bigfoot society if you had a sighting in pennsylvania you wanted investigated shoot me a note on pa bigfoot and you can read about all the cases we've looked into over the years we have a, a really cool map section that you just click on that map and it gives you a little idea of you know what happened there so pretty it's a pretty cool website all right and look i look forward to when this craziness is over i need to join you on a bigfoot expedition or even a mothman expedition and hopefully we'll see you at a paranormal event soon so eric thank you so much for your time tonight you're welcome thanks for having me on bud thanks for listening please consider giving nightmarica a review on apple podcast It really helps raise awareness and boost the show's rankings. Also, give me a follow on social media, at Nightmarica on Instagram and Facebook, and at Aaron Sagers on Instagram and Twitter. And share Nightmarica with your friends. If you are able, I'd appreciate your support on patreon.com forward slash Aaron Sagers, 
where I also create tiki recipes, hold live streams, and share exclusive content. Don't miss new episodes of Paranormal Caught on Camera on Travel Channel and Discovery+. Plus. If you'd like to share your own paranormal stories or get paranormal advice for entertainment purposes only, email nightmericashow at gmail.com. <laughs>